no one likes to wait. And if you're kind of a strange person who enjoys waiting in line, well, I guess we'll talk later. But think of all the different things that we have to wait for in life. Think of all the different things that we might waste our time doing. At the rate of 15 minutes a day, the average person spends a little bit less than a year of their life on the commode. You can think about that the next time that you're in the restroom. Or how about this? The average person will spend 13 hours a year on hold with customer service. You've been there. I've been there. We wait for security for 30 minutes every time that we fly. We wait for hours in line for a ride at Disney. Like our lives are filled with waiting. We spend what seems like years during the course of our life waiting at a traffic light. More than average if you're driving on Bridge Street every day like I am, right? Our lives are filled with waiting. But maybe in a little bit less of a comedic way, there's some serious things that we wait for, aren't there? Maybe it's waiting on a test result for a family member or for yourself, and that in-between is just debilitating. Maybe you've been waiting for that guy to ask you out, or maybe you've been waiting for months for your fiance or your boyfriend to ask you to marry him. Maybe you're married and you've been waiting for years to get pregnant, or you're pregnant and you've been waiting for months for the little one to arrive. Our lives are filled with waiting. And what do we do while we wait? What occupies our time while we wait? I'm convinced it's one of two things. One, (laughs) it's often nothing. If I'm waiting in line at the doctor's office or the dentist's office, what am I often doing? Ah, Checking my email, scrolling through Instagram, reading the news, or essentially I'm doing nothing. Maybe in some of those bigger areas of our life, what occupies our time while we're waiting for that test result? Well, we can become so fixated by the result, by the end goal of what we want to happen, that the time in between is essentially rendered useless. We become so fixated on the end goal that, you know, we're not really doing anything in the in-between. So essentially, we're doing nothing. And I'm afraid that there's a temptation in our walk with Jesus in our Christian life to struggle with the same thing while we wait. Because our lives are filled with waiting as Christians. Now, let me be clear. I'm not talking about sitting in our chairs waiting for young adults to start late, like it does every week. I'm not talking about waiting for the long, boring message to be done so we can go to our small groups. Like, that's not the type of wait that I'm talking about. I'm talking about something much bigger, something much more important. As Christ followers, we are waiting for the day when Jesus returns. When he comes on the clouds in the same way that he ascended into heaven, when he will restore everything and make everything right and everything new, when there's not going to be any struggle with sin and with pain and with death and we're with him forever, we're waiting for that day. But what occupies our time while we wait? For some Christ followers, maybe the temptation is just to do nothing, to kind of waste time. I think for other Christ followers, there's a temptation sometimes to be overly fixated on the end. I'm going to try not to step on toes, but if I do, I'll ask for forgiveness in advance. There's this thing happening in Christian subculture today. There's this over-obsession with the end times. Pastor Jeff talked about a little bit 
in our sermon yesterday, if you're here with us at Highland. I'm not sure why that is, why Christians today seem obsessed with end times. Maybe it's because of the Left Behind series. Maybe it's because our world keeps getting worse and worse. Maybe it's because as people were like drawn to conspiracy theories for some reason, I'm not sure why. Maybe it's a combination of those three things, but there's this obsession with the end times. And what Christians sometimes try to do is they try to figure out, okay, who is the final antichrist? Or is Gog Russia? And is Magog Iran? And, and when is Jesus going to return? Is he going to return next week? And, and people are checking the rapture ready index, determining how likely it is that Jesus is going to return today. Now, are those wrong? Not necessarily. I mean, think of Revelation 1, 3, that blessed is the one who reads and, and hears the words of John's prophecy, that Jesus wants us to think often on his return. But I'm convinced that reading the Rapture Ready Index is not in the top 100 list of ways that we can prepare for Jesus' return. I think there's far better things that we can do in, in the intermediate time that we're walking in in the waiting that we're experiencing as Christians. And I think that's exactly what we're going to see in our text tonight. But as Jesus reminded us in the Gospel of Matthew, in all of that discourse, that nobody knows the day or the hour that Jesus is going to return. Any effort to try to predict the day that Jesus is going to return is not going to work. Here's what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, starting in verse 37. For so they were in the days of Noah, so they'll be in the coming of the Son of Man. The Son of Man is another name for Jesus. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So it will be at the coming of the Son of Man, the coming of Jesus. Two will be in the field and one will be taken. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. Therefore, stay awake. You don't know what day your Lord is coming. You see what Jesus is saying? Nobody knows the exact day that Jesus is going to come back, so it's kind of futile to try to predict it. In other words, we've got to be awake, we've got to be alert, we've got to be prepared and not wasting our time of waiting. But waiting wasn't just a temptation, it's not just a temptation for us. Wasting our, our time waiting was a temptation for the Jews. And that's where we find ourselves in the book of Malachi tonight. And I think a little bit of context is going to be important. Malachi is the final minor prophet, the final prophetic voice. And he was a contemporary of Ezra and Nehemiah. And you remember after the 70 years of exile in Babylon, God brought some of the Jews back into Judah and they started to do some repairs. They repaired the temple, they repaired the city, but it was just a fraction of the glory of the temple and the city before. And the people knew that it was a reminder to them of their sin. But even more than that, even when they came back into the land, they were still under the oppression, under the rule of some nations that weren't very nice. Started with Babylon, then was Persia. Then for a little while, it was the Egyptians. And then you had Alexander the Great and the Greeks that were over uh, the Jews. And then finally, it was the Romans who were over that part of the world when Jesus walked the earth. Now, some of those nations were really nice. We talked about that two weeks ago. Cyrus and the Persian Empire, they treated the Jews really nice. Others of the nations fell a little more into the jerk category, like the Romans. But either way, they were always walking on eggshells, trying to make sure that they didn't make the nation that ruled over them angry so that they could take away their freedom, take away their religious liberty. They didn't have the freedom that they wanted. And the Jews, they, they were waiting anxiously for the day when the Messiah would come, waiting for the day when God would come and make all things new, when he would overthrow the Roman Empire, when he would establish his kingdom on the earth. And they spent time waiting. But generation after generation after generation came and went with God's promise seemingly unfulfilled. 
fulfilled. Between the book of Malachi, the last prophetic voice for the Jews, and the time that Jesus came was over 400 years. 400 years of silence, 400 years of waiting. So I think there's a lot that we can learn from our text tonight. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to Malachi. We're going to be in chapter 4. At least that's where we'll start tonight. The final chapter, the final six verses of the Old Testament. So right before the Gospel of Matthew. Malachi 4, 1 through 6. Follow along with me as I read. I'll be reading out of the ESV. For behold... The day is coming, it's burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On that day, when I act, says the Lord of hosts, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I command him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I'll send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Well, let's start with an important word in that first verse, the day is coming uses a phrase there towards the end of the passage, he talks about the day of the Lord. It's a phrase that's used all throughout the minor prophets, and it's not random. It's not just any random day. It's a specific day. It's the day of judgment for some. It's the day of victory for others. There's two different aspects to the day of the Lord. The text tells us that for those who fear the Lord, the day of the Lord is going to be a day of salvation, a day of redemption, a day of renewal, a day of victory. But for those who are evil, for those who don't fear the Lord, It doesn't paint a very pretty picture. The day of the Lord is burning like an oven. The arrogant and the evildoers will be burned like stubble. We'll set them ablaze. (laughs) It's a picture of the total and complete destruction and devastation that's going to come on those who do not know God, those who do not obey his commands. But it foreshadows a day of both victory and judgment. And then A couple verses later in verse 5, the text tells us that he's going to send Elijah the prophet before the day of the Lord. Now, Elijah was one of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament, but by the time Malachi had written this, he had been gone for centuries. So he's foreshadowing another man that's going to be just like Elijah. There's a man in the New Testament named John the Baptist. Jesus called him Elijah, the one who prepared the way, the one who preached in the wilderness a message of repentance, turning people's hearts to the, to the Lord, preparing them for the one who is to come after him, Jesus, the Messiah. So this text actually predicts that John the Baptist is going to come. But even more than looking ahead to the day when John would come, the people were looking ahead to the day when the Messiah would come, the one who would come and overthrow the Romans, who would bring renewal and restoration that they had so desperately longed for, the king who would rule on David's throne forever, yet generation after generation passed for 400 years with no sign of John the Baptist, Elijah, and with no sign of the Messiah. We also have to understand that the day of the Lord, not only does it have a a dual meaning, both judgment and victory, but it also has a dual fulfillment. Because Jesus came, he lived in our place, he died in our place, he was raised from the grave, conquering sin and death, defeating both death and the devil in the act of his resurrection. 
In that way, Jesus has fulfilled the day of the Lord. But it's not completely fulfilled, is it? (laughs) Because you and I are still waiting for that complete fulfillment, that complete restoration and renewal. So there's two aspects to the day of the Lord. Part of it was completed at the cross, but we're still waiting for ultimate fulfillment of both victory and judgment. But that dual fulfillment of the day of the Lord was a bit of a surprise to the disciples, at least initially, because the 12 guys that lived with Jesus and and spent those three years of ministry with Jesus, they were expecting that when Jesus then was raised from the dead, they thought, this is it. This is the time. Jesus, he's going to overthrow the Roman government. He's going to set up his kingdom on earth, and everything is going to be exactly like what the Old Testament promised now. That's what they were expecting. Now, they didn't have the exact right view of the Messiah at the time. They pictured him as a military ruler. Instead, Jesus was a servant, a king. But it had been 40 days since Jesus was raised from the dead. And he's having a conversation with his disciples. And finally, one of them musters up the courage. One of them has enough guts to say, okay, Jesus, when are you going to overthrow the Romans? And that's exactly what they said in verse 6 of Acts chapter 1. Lord, will you at this time restore your kingdom to Israel? In other words, hey, Jesus, it's a good time for you to overthrow the Romans now. You conquered the grave. You rose from the dead. You did the hardest thing in the history of the world. How hard could it be to overthrow the Roman government? Come on. And the disciples are hoping, oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. I'm going to go do that, and you guys are going to reign with me, and we're going to have an amazing kingdom. They did not get the reply that they wanted. Jesus replied and said, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. But you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. In other words, Jesus said, sorry, I can't answer that question. You're not supposed to know the day that I'm going to establish my kingdom. However, I'm going to give you the greatest gift of all time, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and he's going to empower you, enable you to go share the gospel throughout the whole world. But it didn't quite click for the disciples, because when Jesus said these things, And they were looking on. Jesus was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. In other words, Jesus ascended to heaven right before their eyes. And here's what the disciples did. As they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you in heaven will go in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Do you hear what the angels are telling the disciples? Guys, what are you doing? Why is your jaw on the floor staring up into the sky? That's not going to do you any good. Jesus already told you what to do. Go to Galilee. You're going to stay in Jerusalem. You're going to receive the promised Holy Spirit. It's time to get to work. Instead of staring at the sky, waiting for Jesus to come back, it was time for them to, to preach the gospel, to do what Jesus had ordained them and established them to do. But throughout their whole ministry, <laughs> I'm sure they never forgot this conversation. And they knew that someday Jesus was going to return. Someday he was going to come back on the clouds in the same way that they saw him ascend. (laughs) Which is cool that you and I are actually waiting for that exact same thing. It has been almost 2,000 years since Jesus had this conversation with his disciples. And Jesus said, I'm coming back. I'm going to come back in the same way that I ascended into heaven. But we're still waiting. And what do we do in the in-between? How do we prepare? Are we supposed to just post out in a deer stand, looking at the sky, hoping that Jesus comes back every day? I don't think that's what he envisions. 
And I think you and I could come up with dozens of ways that we could prepare for the second coming, dozens of ways that we could make sure that we don't waste the in-between. And that's our big idea for tonight is this, don't waste the wait. Don't waste the wait. If you're a Christ follower tonight, you've given your life to Jesus, then we are waiting for the day for Jesus to come back. But don't waste it. But instead of just picking 10 or 12 different things that that could ensure that we're not wasting the in-between, I think we can let Malachi determine tonight uh, what some of those things might be, how we can be faithful. The first idea (laughs) comes from a word that we use often in our culture. I've actually heard it a lot more in the last year. It's the word fear. And we use the word fear to describe something that might instill terror in our hearts. Some of us have irrational fears, what we'd call a phobia. Anybody have an irrational fear? Great. One of you is honest. I appreciate that. (laughs) Well, I'll be a little vulnerable tonight, and I'll share my irrational fear. I'm terrified. This could come back to bite me. I'm terrified of wasps, hornets, bees, yellow jackets, anything that can sting. Growing up, uh, and still today, my mom is anaphylactic shock allergic. It's a the yellow jackets, bees, wops. So I was just instilled in me from a very young age that I was not supposed to like them. And I still hate them. It just, I run when one comes close to me. But every year around this time of year, um, and the weather starts to warm up, I like to open the windows in my office to enjoy the fresh air that we can't enjoy for 11 months out of the year. So for a while, the windows in my office didn't have screens. So when I would open the window and enjoy the fresh air, inevitably, Uh, a wasp would come and fly into my office. And you know exactly what I did. I'd unplug my computer, I'd shut the door, and I'd go work somewhere else. (laughs) And then I would text my friend Brennan. Brennan's our tech director, does a great job with so many different things behind the scenes at our church. And I would text him, and very graciously, he would come to my office, and he would take care of the wasp, and then I'd go back to work. Well, last time this happened, not one, but two wasps came flying into my office. And I left and I decided, you know, I'm, I'm going to play the man card today. I'm going to go get that fly swatter, and I'm going to go kill that wasp. So I did. I grabbed the fly swatter. I went and killed the wasp. I was so proud of myself, felt like a man. And I couldn't, I couldn't take care of the other one. And Brennan was like, okay, I'll come take care of it for you. So not to be outdone, Brennan comes into my office and kills the wasp with his bare hand by squeezing it between his thumb and his pointer finger. He didn't get stung. I mean, I was really impressed and kind of mortified at the same time. <laughs> There's all things that we're afraid of. And when the Bible uses the word fear, it's not talking about an irrational phobia most of the time. It's not talking about how I feel when a wasp flies in my office. When the Bible uses the word fear, a synonym would be awe and reverence and respect. I have no awe or reverence for a wasp, right? But when the Bible talks about our fear of God, it's not an irrational fear. It's an awe, a reverence, and a respect. It's understanding who God is, that he's the creator, that he's holy, that he's just, that he can't even tolerate sin in his presence. But at the same time, he's loving and he's compassionate and he's gracious. That if we're going to walk with obedience, if we're not going to waste the weight, then we have to have a fear of the Lord. And we see that in our text in Malachi. 
We see that in, in verse 2. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise on healing in its wings. In other words, healing in its wings, that's talking about salvation. That if we want to be saved by God, that if we want to experience the joy of salvation, something has to happen first. We have to fear God first. And that's our first principle tonight. Fear God first. Fear God first. What about you? Do you fear God? Do you have an awe? Do you have a reverence? Do you have a respect for who God is? Proverbs tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That if we want to understand what it means to be wise, we first have to have the right understanding of who God is. And this impacts every aspect of our life, but ultimately it, it influences our, our salvation. That if we want to be saved by Jesus, the first thing that has to happen, we have to fear God. We have to understand who he is. We have to understand our own sinfulness, our own depravity, that our hearts are deceitful and wicked, that we could never even dream of saving ourselves. We could never even hope to do enough good things to have a right relationship with God, that by our own sinful behavior, we have earned for ourselves eternity separated from God in a literal place called hell. It doesn't get any worse than that, but that's what we deserve. Understanding that God is righteous and just in sending sinners to hell. That's the bad news. The good news is that God in his love sent Jesus into the world, living the perfect life in our place, dying in our place on the cross that we could have eternal life. Romans tells us if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, if we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, then we'll be saved. Have you crossed the line? Have you cried out to Jesus as your Savior and your Lord, begging for his forgiveness, giving your life to him. That's the most important decision that all of us can make. Ultimately, fearing God begins with embracing him for our salvation. And once we have that relationship with Christ, fearing God first means that we're going to submit to his standard for morality. It means that God is going to be the one that sets the standard, that sets the rules in our life. We obey what he asks us to do. Really interesting verse in Malachi. Chapter 2, verse 17 says this. You've wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? You see what Malachi is saying? In his culture, in the world that he was living in, there were people who were saying that the evil things that are happening, no, that's actually good. And the good things that are happening are actually evil. That sound familiar? Sounds just a little bit like the culture that we're in today. A world that is championing things that are against what God desires. And then on the flip side are condemning things that God calls good. So maybe that's not just an America problem. Maybe this is a human nature problem. What we're experiencing in our world today is nothing new. People calling what is evil good and what is good evil. But for us, when we embrace Christ, when we fear God first, we allow him to set the standard for morality. We allow him to determine what is right and what is wrong. And, and for us to, to understand what God desires, we've got to be reading his word. For us to discern the will of God, what it means to obey God, we've got to be spending time in scripture. We've got to be taking in the words of Christ into our life. So that's our second principle tonight, is we need to practice what Jesus preached, and practice what Jesus preached. 
that fear of God impacts our salvation, then the next step, it impacts our obedience. We've got to practice what Jesus preached. Maybe that this would be a great goal for us this week. Three chapters in the New Testament, the longest sermon recorded in Scripture is Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount. If you want to get a picture of the way that Jesus expects us to live our life, a picture of how he wants us to obey him, read Matthew 5 through 7. Even pick one chapter a day this week and just work through it. An amazing picture. We could spend, we could spend an hour on each paragraph. I mean, we're slowly working, way, working our way through the Sermon on the Mount on our third Monday worship services. A great picture of what it means to practice obedience. But we also get some unique pictures even within the book of Malachi, and I want to highlight one, uh, one way that we can walk in obedience, practicing what Jesus preached. Just allow me to read in, in Malachi 2, 13 through 16. And there's a second thing you do. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering and accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was a witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you've been faithless, though she's your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one and with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. (laughs) This is a really interesting text on marriage out of the Old Testament. I didn't even know this was here until I was studying through Malachi a couple of weeks ago. And we take a little bit of risk anytime that we read a text that talks about divorce. And just a couple of disclaimers before I dive, on, dive into what this is saying, that when we talk about divorce biblically, we've got to make sure that we take each text into account. Because if someone just read this text and tried to discern a biblical theology of divorce, they would say that divorce is never allowed ever. But Jesus provides some clarity rounds out the the picture in the New Testament. Think of Matthew 19, where God's will, his desire is for a couple to be faithful in marriage, but he allows divorce in uh, in the case of sexual immorality. That would not commands, but allows for divorce. Another case would be in 1 Corinthians 7, where an unbelieving spouse abandons a believing spouse, and Paul says that the believing spouse is then free to get remarried. So there's some instances in Scripture where divorce would be okay, but we see in this passage that is not at all what Malachi is envisioning. That's what, not what God is observing. In other words, he's looking at a man or a woman who made a, a covenant to the, their husband, to their wife, that they were going to be faithful to the rest, for the rest of their life. And it's interesting what God says in verse 14, because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, whom you've been faithless, that when a husband and wife stand at the front of the church or front of the venue and they commit themselves together, that God is present. He's a witness to the covenant that they're making. And that the husband or the wife basically said, I'm kind of sick of this relationship. I'm not really attracted to my spouse anymore. I kind of want to marry somebody a little bit younger. So I'm just going to file for divorce and I just don't think that God thinks it's that big of a deal. But God's clear in this text that that totally goes against his will. And for us, a way that we can fear the Lord, for us, a way that we can practice obedience is by being faithful to our marriages. (laughs) Now, 80% of you are looking at me thinking, Sam, that doesn't apply to me. I'm single. 
Well, don't think quite that so fast. Because think of how God has defined sexual immorality. The sexual immorality is any sex outside of the context of a marriage between a man and a woman for life. That for those of you tonight who aren't yet married, unless God has appeared to you in a dream and said, thou shalt be single for the rest of your life, you could be married before the end of the year. I don't know. Faithfulness to your future spouse starts today, not tomorrow, not next year. If you're going to, be, if you're going to wait to, to treat your, your spouse with purity until the day you're married, you're probably going to end up in my office. It's too late. That today is the day to start practicing purity in how you live your life. That for the, the guy or the girl who's currently viewing pornography, you're actually sinning against your future spouse. For the guy or the girl who's messing around with their significant other, you're sinning against your future spouse. We don't think about it that way. But for us to practice obedience means that we've got to be faithful to our current marriages, those of us who aren't married, our, our future marriages. So kind of a cool nugget from the book of Malachi. So here's one final way tonight that we can prepare for the second coming of Christ. To not waste the wait uh, comes from uh, the text that we are in first in Malachi. Let me read verse 2 again. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. The prophets loved word pictures, and they used two, he uses two word pictures in this one verse, and let's unpack both of them. It talks about the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. This is what I imagine he's talking about, and we can relate. Imagine for two weeks straight, it's been 40 degrees overcast and rainy. We all say, ugh, right? But it's Saturday morning. The forecast looks great. It's going to be 75 and sunny. There's going to be no wind, no clouds in the sky. And for some reason, you're up at 7 a.m. and that sun is, is rising into the sky. That day, the sun has healing power. That's the picture that Malachi is painting in this text, that the sun will rise with healing in its wings. Another translation talks about vindication in its wings, making things that are wrong right, bringing renewal and restoration to God's creation. The sun of righteousness will rise with healing. It's a picture of Isaiah 53. By his wounds, by Jesus' wounds, we have been healed. It's not a physical healing. It's a spiritual healing of having a right relationship with God. The sun of righteousness is Jesus and the day, that he, the day the sun rises is the day that Jesus returns and restores his creation to the way that it's meant to be. That's what we're looking forward to as Christians. And then as he goes into his next metaphor, he gives this picture of how you and I, if we follow Christ, if we're walking in obedience, how we're going to respond, how we're going to feel on the day that Jesus comes back, the day that the Son of Righteousness comes and he talks about calves dancing. And instead of me describing that, I just thought we could watch a little bit of a video. So Daniel, if you could cue that up for us. I mean, every Wisconsinite can appreciate a good dancing cow video, right? <laughs> Come on, I would take that as a pet, right? Now that was the first day that that calf had ever seen green grass, 
had been in the barn its entire life. The first day of spring, they release him from the stall and they go and experience green grass. That's the picture that Malachi is, is picturing. The same exact thing. We can try to wrap our mind around this. That is how we, if we're following Christ faithfully, are going to respond the day that Jesus returns. <laughs> Maybe I should put it this way. That's how we are going to feel. A feeling of joy, of sheer and utter enjoyment, of excitement, of releasing all of the care, all of the anxiety, all of the burden, all of the pain of our life is behind us, and everything is right and new, and it's that feeling of complete and utter joy. That's how we're going to feel if we're following Christ when Jesus returns. But what about you? How are you? How am I going to feel? Are we going to feel like that? Or are we going to want to dig in a hole and hide in embarrassment and shame when Jesus returns? Maybe we can get a little more real. If Jesus would have returned on Friday night, would you have been excited? Or would you have wanted to run the other direction? What would he have found you, me, doing? I think the answer to those questions might give a little insight into our life on, on how we're living. Are we living preparing for Jesus to come back? Or am I living for myself? It reminds me what John wrote in 1 John 2, 28. He said this, And now, children, abide or remain in him, so that when he, Jesus, appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back in shame at his coming. There's going to be two responses when Jesus returns. Excitement and joy or shame and embarrassment. If we're not walking in obedience, if we don't have a fear of the Lord. So we need to think often of Jesus' return and allow that to align our priorities today. So that's our, our final principle. Anticipate the end. Anticipate the end. What would happen if we looked in the mirror each day and said, Jesus could come back today. Are you ready? Am I ready? <laughs> How many things would change? How many gospel conversations would we have? How many situations just wouldn't be that big of a deal if Jesus came back tomorrow? I mean, think of the things that aren't going to matter the moment Jesus returns. <laughs> our 401k, our Robinhood account aren't going to matter. Giant work projects my golf clubs, the endless house projects, political ar arguments, that Netflix series that we've been wanting to binge watch, the Brewers game tonight, the endless Aaron Rodgers drama. None of it is going to matter the moment that Jesus returns. But on the flip side, think of all the things that are going to matter. The gospel conversation that I need to have with my grandpa, that's going to matter. The missionaries that are raising support to go on the field, they're going to bring the gospel Bringing God's word to people that don't have it, that is going to matter. Discipling my family, that's going to matter. When we think of Jesus' return, it's going to help align our priorities today. <laughs> but if we take it a step farther than that, I hope that when we envision Jesus' return, that it fills us with joy, that it fills us with hope, that the battle 
and the struggle and the toil and the suffering, the temptation, the lure towards sin that we feel in our heart is going to be gone the day that Jesus returns. And we'll finally see the face of our Savior, the one who died for us, who loved us enough to give his life for us. The joy that a faithful follower of Christ is going to experience on that day is greater than what a couple is going to experience on their wedding day. It's greater than what you might feel when you walk across the stage and get that high school or college diploma. It's greater than the feeling that a mom or dad might feel the day that their first child is born. Greater than the feeling that we might get when we get that promotion that we've been waiting for for the last year. Friends, it's going to be the greatest day of our life. Are you ready? Are you excited? Are you prepared? Or have you been wasting the wait? Because Jesus is going to come back at a time we don't expect. We've got to be ready. We've got to be ready by fearing God first, by thinking often of Jesus' return, by walking in obedience. Don't waste the wait. Let me pray. Father, grow in our hearts the anticipation for the day when Jesus will return. Well, now come back in the same way that he ascended, when he'll come to restore his creation, to make everything new. We're excited. And may that help align our priorities today as we walk through our week and still in our hearts a desire to invest in the things that matter in eternity and help us put into perspective the things that really aren't going to matter. We want to walk in obedience. May we be faithful to prepare well uh, for Jesus' second coming. In Jesus' name.